We come now to Hebrews chapter 5. If you have your bulletin, you'll see our title there. It's actually our title and our really single uh, point in today's sermon. We want to, uh, to look at what chapter 5 begins to tell us about our high priest. But in doing this, it's going to speak, or the author of Hebrews is going to speak of the office of high priest in general, and we'll see that today. And we'll gather from that that he's going to broach some of these subjects over the chapters ahead. But we've spoken about this letter for quite some time, a letter that is to assure us of what God has offered us in the person and work of Christ. It's really what we've been looking at from the very beginning, who Christ is and what He came to accomplish. It addresses all believers, that's why we're reading it, um, but it specifically, particularly, was written to a group of Hebrew Christians who had begun to turn away, if you will, from what they had once claimed they believed, which is that Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, the Son of Man, the enthroned Messianic King, He is our High Priest, our Reigning Lord, all these truths that are taken together as who we say Jesus is and what He has done and is continuing to do in terms of His uh, current intercession on our behalf as our High Priest, all those things they have affirmed. They have said, we believe these things, but they're not living like they believe it because they're talking about turning away and going back to the synagogue and saying, well, we'll claim that that is enough. We've talked in the past, there's some debate about whether or not the temple is standing. Most scholars think it was when this was written. So it might even be that you could go back to Jerusalem and see the temple and see the ministrations and and the priesthood uh, being carried out. And they're saying, we may just turn back to that. It's safer. There's less harm, less danger, no persecution there. But again, the question is, are you going to continue to profess in that way what you've been professing? And the answer is no. You're going to say no. The priesthood of, of Aaron is enough. The high priesthood in Jerusalem, that's enough. I don't need Jesus as a mediator. I have a mediator. And he goes behind the curtain once a year on behalf of all the people of God. And that's enough. But it isn't enough. And that's really the argument of this letter. All of that pointed forward to Jesus who was to come not to pass through a curtain once a year, but to pass through the heavens to take his rightful place in the heavenly tabernacle at the right hand of God the Father. And there he would rule and reign as this messianic priest king over his people. Not only ruling and reigning over us, but also interceding on our behalf as our priest. It's the fullness of all the pictures given to us in the Old Testament. Here it is fulfilled in Christ. And this author is saying, and what you're talking about is saying, we'll go back to the shadow. We'll go back to the part. right? We'll go back to that which is fulfilled in Christ. But we'll, we'll turn away from Christ himself. Now again, uh, all of this has been pointed to us. And we looked in those early phases that the argument was really about the covenant. The new covenant being greater than the old covenant. We walked through that at some length. But again, we've taken a turn. It's been, the groundwork's been laid for quite some time about the priesthood of Jesus, uh, the high priesthood of, of Christ, but, um, but we've really taken a turn now to where it's the main focus. Still, we've had things set out for us, important points that we would need to know. Uh, the author goes to Psalm 8 and says, you know this psalm, David wrote it. He says, someone once said, but we know who wrote it. Uh, David says, what is man that you're mindful of him, right? 
You created him lower than the angels, and you crowned him with, with glory and honor. And the author of Hebrews says that's more than just a look back at creation. It's also a look forward to the messianic king who would come, who though he is uh, fully divine, he is the second person of the Trinity, he is the, the, the son, the eternal son of God. We looked at that a little bit in our journey Wednesday night. But, and yet he came into the world took on flesh, he became a man, fully and truly man, for this mission he was sent on in which he would be named son again, but in a different sense. Now the fully messianic son of David, priest king, the one who was son becomes the son. And all these divine mysteries are pointed to again and again in the text. But in doing this, he says you made him lower than the angels. He became a man. He who was fully divine and continued to be fully divine, but became a man, became lower than the angels, and yet you crowned him with honor and glory, meaning what? When he completed his mission, he ascended to the very throne of God, to the right hand of God the Father, where he rules and reigns and ministers as our priest king. That's what he means. So he says Psalm 8 points to something very important. This is the story of Jesus. It's not just to look back at creation, but creation pointed forward to its own fulfillment in the messianic king. But there are some other things said, if you remember. It said, for a priest is appointed from the people. Now that's an important point, isn't it? We, it seems like we come back in Hebrews a lot to this point of the essential nature of the incarnation. But the Bible comes back over and over to the essential nature of the incarnation. The one who is truly God had to become truly man or he could not be our high priest. Now, we've argued he couldn't fulfill any of those key offices pictured in the Old Testament without being fully God and fully man. But certainly, he cannot be priest. Why? Well, this letter told you in chapter 2. He must come from amongst the people he represents. A priest is chosen from amongst his own people. If Jesus is not a man, he cannot be a faithful and perfect high priest in the things pertaining to God. The the Scripture tells us this, but it's going to tell it again. Jesus, this author wants us to realize, fulfills all the qualifications, meets all the qualifications that are necessary to be a high priest. And these qualifications, by the way, are essential whether you're from the order of Levi or Melchizedek. It doesn't matter. These are essential traits, essential things that, qualifications that must be met for you to be a true high priest in things pertaining to God. And so we're going to come back to it today, and we're going to do so by looking at one point, and that is the qualifications and an appointment appointment of the high priest. So I want to read the text here one more time, but what I actually want to do here is I want to start back at 14 of the previous chapter, and you'll see why in just a moment, and we want to work through to verse 7. Actually, we'll go through to verse 8. Sing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said, but it was he, excuse me, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now we're going to be walking through some of this in future weeks uh, that we read there at the end, but it was important that we read what we looked at the last couple of Sundays as well, and we'll notice why in just a moment. But as we come to this first subject of qualifications and appointment of the high priest, we want to start out by recognizing that this letter uh, doesn't hide from the fact that it's making a claim that Jesus is the high priest of the people of God. He is. No question about it, no debate about it. He doesn't act as if I need to convince you of this in the sense that there's a rival to this position. He simply says, if you turn back, you're turning back to what foreshadowed Jesus. But it all points to him as the fulfillment of all these, all this point and all this office. It is all wrapped up in Jesus. He is the true high priest, and there really isn't a debate about it. But he says, as we convince you of this, that you can't turn back, reminding you, I think, really is what we should say, reminding of who it is they've claimed to believe and claimed to have trusted as both Savior and High Priest, he says there's some things that you need to to consider. So uh, we looked at what's been said in chapter 4, some important things that were said, things we've looked at in, in detail. But one of those key points that's been made is that he is like the Levitical High Priest, only greater, superior to him. He's like Aaron in some sense, but greater than Aaron. Just like he's like Moses in a sense, but greater than Moses. He's like Joshua in a sense, but greater than Joshua. Joshua, Moses, and Aaron point to him, but he is greater. He is superior to all of them. And one of the things that it wants us to remember is some of the points that have been made. As we talk about him being greater, we base it on several things. Now, much is going to come later about his greatness, but there's a few things we've already seen. Aaron and his successors passed through the curtains of the temple. Jesus passed through the heavens. They entered in just once a year for a short time. He eternally abides in the presence of his Father making intercession for us. So that's one way we've already seen just in the last couple of weeks that it claims and, and, and demonstrates that he is greater than Aaron. But also, it's important for us to realize an important point that's being made. Aaron had to sacrifice for his own sins. His sons, his descendants, his successors had to sacrifice for their own sins. Jesus does not. That's already being pointed to. It's going to be argued in more detail later, but these are important points. So again, while it is pointing clearly the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus over and against that of Aaron, there's also a lot of connectivity. So there's some continuity that we want to see between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Christ, even though he's not from the order of Levi. We need to realize this because it's going to use Levi's priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the the priesthood of Aaron, to set in place some basic conditions, qualifications that have to be met for any person who would be 
high priest. Now, we've already looked at a few of these, but they're going to come back again today with a few others. And so, again, it's important for us to realize this. Now, um, one of the things that we want to see as we see the connectivity of this is that Jesus is not of this order, but he is being compared to this order in this sense so that we will see connections and see foreshadowings. Now, one thing we would obviously know is he represents the people of God. This is what Aaron did. This is what all the Levitical priests did. They represented the people of God uh, before God. They represented them coming and offering sacrifices and so forth. This is just what we basically know about the priesthood. Now, as we think about that, we recognize that this text gives us some points that we need to consider. Well, what are they? Well, first of all, this text tells us that the high priest is drawn among men, from among men. Now, we just mentioned that's given to us in chapter 2, but it's also given to us here. Verse 1, For every priest taken from among men is appointed for men. So that first part of that phrase is every high priest is taken from among men. Now, why is that important? He represents the people of whom he is a part. He represents the people of God. He represents Israel in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood. He represented Israel. And we've already spoken about why that's important and how that backs up the argument of the Incarnation. But what this means is it can't be an angel. God did not appoint a high, an angel as high priest. Right? He wasn't sufficient. He couldn't be appointed. Now, again, this letter to the Hebrews comes back over and over again to say humanity is important to God. Important. He didn't uh, put animals in the high priesthood. It seems ridiculous, and it is ridiculous, but it's a point, isn't it? He didn't put angels in the high priesthood. He put man in this position. Man is interceding on behalf of man because it's man that he came to save. It's man that he came to save. And so, again, we need to recognize this points back to the arguments earlier in chapter 2 again. It isn't angels to whom he has placed authority over the age to come. It is to man, and specifically Christ. And so we see this point. It is man that is appointed to be high priest. It is man who is appointed to represent man before God. And therefore, Jesus had to become a man. Again, we would emphasize here that there is no question except that the incarnation is an essential doctrine of Christianity. Without it, Christ cannot do this. But notice, it also says that he is appointed. He is appointed. Now, that appointed, the verb here is actually passive. It means he doesn't appoint himself. He doesn't uh, offer himself up for this. He is appointed to this task. Now, we can see this from the very beginning. Aaron didn't say, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll be high priest. God appointed Aaron high priest. God appointed the descendants of Aaron, the, the, the Levitical priest. He is the one who determined this. Nobody could appoint themselves to be priest, only those appointed by God. Now, this is an important lesson found over and over in Scripture because people try to violate this numerous times. Uh, they come in and say, well, you know what? I don't see why I can't do these things. Well, what about with Uzziah, who again wanted to go in and offer up incense? And you'll remember all the, all the priests come in after him and say, no, 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 no. This is not for you to do. In an incredibly bold moment where they withstand the king, uh, they say, this is not for you to do. And immediately, as I recall, leprosy uh, shows on his face and you begin to see uh, God's judgment on this. 
again, Uzziah was not appointed a priest. He wasn't to do these things. God has to appoint. Even in cases where you might find somebody who takes on a priestly role, uh, though they weren't of the Levitical priesthood, they do a priestly act, it is appointed by God for them to do it. And so we see that even in this case. The argument moving forward is going to be, uh, yeah, he's not, Jesus is not a descendant of Aaron. right? He's not of that tribe. He's not of that people. But that's okay because God has appointed him priest, not of that order, but of a completely different order. An order that preceded that order, if you will. An order pictured in this mysterious figure who we're going to come to know very well as we travel through, or as well as we can, right, as we travel through uh, this letter. But Melchizedek, he is appointed after an entirely different order. But again, Jesus did not appoint himself. Now, why is this important? Well, we're told to come boldly to him. We're told to come expectantly, expecting to find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. Well, how can we be sure that he is the priest that he says? That's why, by the way, you'll notice verse 1 of chapter 5 begins with gar, for. This is not divorced from what we just read in chapter 4, but he's saying here's why we can go to him in our time of need, because he is our faithful high priest. And here's how you know. Because every high priest who serves is appointed from among men, so is he. He also is appointed in things pertaining to God. He represents man, so was Jesus. He was appointed for this very same thing. And he was appointed. He was appointed by God to fulfill this task. And he came and he did it. And yes, indeed, he's serving in things pertaining to God. F.F. Bruce said this, that he stands on our behalf in things related to what God has called a priest to do. That's a very simple way of putting this, but it's what he's saying. He stands on our behalf fulfilling the task, if you will, the role of a high priest Well, what does that mean? Well, it means in one sense he's already completed one part of that work, hasn't he? It was completed on Calvary. It was finished there. He doesn't continue to offer sacrifices over and over again. You know, one of the things that we point to that is so wrong in the Mass in the Catholic Church is they literally claim to be sacrificing the body and blood of Jesus every week. He is sacrificed over and again, over and again, over and again, every time there's Mass. And we ask how in the world that comports the picture of the scriptures of it being finished. Once and for all, the, the, the oblation made, the, the price satisfied. Again, when we say that he has done these things that are pertaining to God, we mean, first of all, he's offered the sacrifice that was required. That is completed. That has been done. But now he ministers as our high priest faithfully before God. And he continues to do that. And so we need to recognize that he is continuing to do these things. And he does them for the very reason that the author told us at the end of chapter 4, which is that we have needs. We have needs. Now, that's just the reality of it. And you can see it. Now, to that end, he offers gifts and sacrifices. That's interesting wording, isn't it? Gifts and sacrifices. Those both go to for sins. So it's not gifts and then sacrifices for sins, but he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. And again, this is a way of saying he does all the offering that needed to be offered. All of it. You know, there were blood offerings in the Old Testament and there were grain offerings. There were all these offerings that pictured all the different needs that we had. Jesus satisfied them all in his oblation, in his sacrifice. All of them were satisfied. So he offered himself up. And again, that is 
what's said in chapter 1, isn't it? When he by himself or in his own body purged our sins. When he completed this work on Calvary's cross, he had completed this sacrifice that we needed. The very thing the high priest and the priesthood in general was there to do in the Old Testament, right? To offer up all these daily sacrifices and most importantly of all, and this letter points to this throughout its uh, argument, most importantly, that great sacrifice on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, that only the high priest could offer, and he could only offer it that one day a year. And so again, that was an, an offering, if you will, on behalf of the people of God. The people of God. It wasn't an offering that I bring because I did something bad to my neighbor, or I, I maybe accidentally blasphemed or something like that. I might bring an offering to atone or to try to, uh, to do that. But, but again, this is one that the high priest offers on behalf of all the people of God once a year. And again, you can see why that's such a great pointer to, to Christ and His sacrifice. So again, uh, this is an important picture that's given to us right here in these few verses. But there's another one as we go uh, into verse 2. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Now that's interesting wording, isn't it? Um, first of all, we could say he has compassion or, or mercy but before we come back to that word, go back to, to what's said at the end. Those who are ignorant and going astray. Now, why is it worded that way? I think it's important for us to recognize that the Bible pictures that the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Covenant were for people who stumbled into sin. In other words, they didn't realize they violated it or they, um, again, either accidentally did it in ignorance or uh, by going astray, meaning in a moment of weakness or not thinking things through. They stumbled into sin. The Bible warns against what it calls lifting a high hand in sin or willfully sinning. The Old Testament pictures no sacrifice for sins like that. And this is something that we need to think about because, again, Hebrews is going to argue, be careful about willfully sinning against God, against knowing that God has said it, and you say, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. Be very careful about those things. There are warnings in the text about it. And so, again, I think that's why it's worded this way. He's trying to make a, a very important argument here. When you say, I know God would not favor me going back to the synagogue. I know it dishonors Christ to go back to the synagogue. I know that I'm saying Jesus is not sufficient if I go back to the synagogue. I'm going to go anyway. This author says the Old Testament doesn't necessarily show a sacrifice for something like that. Now, my friends, again, I'm not saying that he is not saying that God's grace doesn't abound, but he's saying we've got to be very careful with flippantly treating sin that way because we do oftentimes treat sin very flippantly like, well, it doesn't really matter. God's a forgiving God. He is, but he also calls us not to test and try him constantly. And again, uh, that we are to be a people who abhor evil because he does. And so we need to recognize the little things that are said here that are warning a people 2,000 years ago, but also said as warnings for us today about we are to be at war against sin, not inviting it in, and not flippantly treating it like it doesn't matter. Again, the Bible tells us where sin abounds, God's grace abounds more greatly. We don't want to forget that, but also we are told don't act as if we can just willfully sin without consequence. And so again, notice what he says about the high priest here. He has compassion, compassion, Metrio pateo, and this is the words together of like metered and pathos, right? So metered or measured out and also 
empathy or compassion upon somebody. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It's a very rare word in Greek in general. But it means kind of something interesting. It doesn't just mean to have compassion, although that's a good word to translate it, or to have sympathy for. A lot of the newer translations translate it in different ways. But what it means is to have a measured compassion. And that might seem in a way like it dulls down the compassion. It's not what it means. It means on the one hand that when you are exercising your compassion as a priest or a high priest, in this particular case, you're not to get weary of being compassionate. You're not supposed to let your mood that day affect your ministering. Now, we're human beings as ministers today, and high priests were human beings in those days. That happened, didn't they? They were having a bad day. They probably weren't as empathetic. I'm sure priests in general weren't as empathetic. They would, might handle something differently one day to the next because they were having a better day than the day before or a worse day than the day before. Again, they are to be measured. It should be the same every day. They should, in every way, treat every situation with the proper amount of grace and compassion. But that also means they're not to flippantly treat sin. Right? When we say measured compassion... That means they are to be compassionate and understanding and caring. And if you come to them, then you say, I understand something about the situation you've fallen into here or the situation you've stumbled into not realizing your ignorance or didn't realize that you were ignorantly violating the law, which could happen. Right? There are times that you go, I didn't even realize that was wrong. Right? I didn't even realize I wasn't supposed to do that. No one ever explained that to me from the Word of God. I didn't realize it was wrong. And the high priest would say, okay. Listen, we've all stumbled here from time to time. Didn't realize things were a violation of the law. But you do now. Don't let it happen again. Right? Offer up the proper sacrifice and, and go on, but don't do it again. And again, that is this idea of stumbling. Uh, those who stumble because of ignorance. But also some just go astray. They're out not doing what they should do and they stumble into disobedience or they they go into disobedience not not in the sense of willfulness they didn't say i know god doesn't want me to do this i'm going to do it anyway but through their actions they violate the law and realize later or have guilt about it later they realize what they've done and they come to the to the minister to the high priest uh, for the proper steps to be taken and again he's to have compassion on them and metered or measured compassion in other words You did this, you did something like this six months ago. But maybe you were ignorant of this too. So let's take the proper steps and then let's not let it happen again. Again, the idea here is of grace and mercy, but you also don't want to see it go to the other end where they're so compassionate, right? So, so merciful. And by the way, it isn't mercy or compassion at all when it goes to this extreme to where he's overlooking sin or excusing sin. That is the other end of that metered or measured nature of this compassion. You don't simply begin to turn a blind eye to sin and say it doesn't matter. It's okay. Everything's fine. The high priest was to take a straight line approach of compassion, but also truthfulness toward the people he was dealing with. So again, Aaron should do this. Didn't do it well, did he? Aaron, of all people that we point to in the scriptures, had his ups and downs, didn't he? At times, he seemed to be standing and, and doing good things. The next thing you know, he's like, hey, the people wanted a golden calf. I thought this is a great idea. Let's do this thing. Over and over again, 
Aaron missteps. And guess what? So do all the high priests that come after him. Right? They misstep. Some were better than others. But all human beings, all tainted by the corruption of the fall, all of them sinners. So again, those are those five things. He must be appointed by God from among men. He represents man. He offers sacrifices. And he has compassion, measured compassion upon the people of God. So this author is saying, we're arguing Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all these things. Well, is he from among men? Yes. He became a man. He was born a Jew. He was amongst the people of Israel. right? He perfectly kept the law, but he was truly man. And therefore, he meets the first requirement. Is he appointed? Well, we're going to look next week at that being set out in the Old uh, Testament that he would be appointed a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So yes, he did not appoint himself. He's not a, a rogue high priest like some we read about. And by the way, there were rogue high priests in the New Testament days, right? While the temple still remained, there were some priests that were appointed uh, other than by God. And we can uh, read our, in fact, we will be coming to uh, church history soon enough and we'll be seeing some of those things on Wednesday nights. But again, Again, uh, Christ did not appoint himself. He was appointed. In fact, that title, Christ, points to that, right? Jesus, his name, Christ, his title, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. God brought him into the world for this mission. This was the point. He came to fulfill all these things. All right, well, what about the fact that he ministers uh, in relation to things pertaining to God. Yes, that's the entire point of this letter. He offered the sacrifice, which is, by the way, the fourth point. He offered the sacrifice, and he intercedes on our behalf even as we speak. So, yes, he meets both three and four. And does he have compassion upon us, measured compassion? Well, Jesus is never going to excuse sin, so we don't have to worry about that one side of the equation. What about the other? Does he get weary of giving aid to his people? Does he get weary of having compassion on those who come repentantly before him? No, he doesn't. He's, he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, forever, because he is God. right? And so he does not change. He is the perfect fulfillment of that measured compassion. He is the one we can trust. We don't have to say, I believe he forgave me before, but I don't know if he'll forgive me this time. I don't know if he will. You know, I got angry, I lost my temper, and I said something I shouldn't said. He says, did he forgive you the last time you did something foolishly? Not willfully, we don't want to go into that, broach that subject just yet, but when you, when you did something without thinking, did he forgive you last time? Yes. Are you repentant for it? Are you coming before him in that sense? Yes. Then he's the same. The same measured compassion you encountered last time, you will encounter again. That's the very point. He's not like the earthly high priest who gets mad because you're wasting his time this time and tells you, go. I don't want to deal with you this time. I'm tired of seeing you. Jesus not only doesn't get tired of seeing us, he calls his people to come boldly before his throne. Come boldly. When you have hours of weakness, hours of being tempted and tried, when you need aid, when you need help, come here, you will find mercy and grace. Now, what those verses were trying to tell us is come before you sin, right? Come when the temptations are there. Come when you're in the trial. Come when you're weak. When you know you're weak, come then. Ask for aid. Ask for help. Ask for His 
mercy in those times, that he would be your help in those hours, that you might avoid falling into some temptation or trial. But here's the thing. Even when we are ignorant or we go astray and we end up in sin, he says, listen, he's still our high priest. Come before him repentantly. Come before him and we can know what to expect. He is a a mediator, a high priest who offers measured mercy, mercy to his people, compassion to his people. So again, the argument here is he meets all of these qualifications and he does them better than Aaron did, better than any of Aaron's successors did. We have a high priest who meets all of our needs. And so now when we go back to chapter 4 and we see there that it says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. This is what it means. Now we knew it because we'd already seen it in chapter 2, but it, it just reiterates this. The author wants to hit us with this over and over again because he's speaking to people who are like, yeah, I've heard this, but I don't like the danger I'm facing over here in the church. I might go back to the synagogue. And this author says over and over again, do not forget you're going back to a high priest who couldn't fulfill the very requirements of his priesthood except in a way by God's help, right? God appointed him from among men, but he was a sinner. He had to offer sacrifices for his own sins before he could offer sacrifices for yours. We're going to come to chapter 7, and one of the great and glorious things said about our current high priest, our forever high priest, who has no successor unlike Aaron, is that he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself before offering sacrifices for us. He's able to go and offer a sacrifice for us because he himself is sinless. So again, when it says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, what does it mean? Well, he was appointed from among men. The very requirement of being a high priest. He has faced the things that we faced. He has faced our human weaknesses. This is what we tried to point to in our sermon a couple of weeks ago. He has faced the weaknesses that we face as human beings. Yet he did it without sin. And because he understands us, and because he has compassion upon us, because he is our merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, he says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Because it's there that we find mercy and grace in our time of need. And he stands ready to give it to us. And it's not depending on the day of the week. It's not depending on his mood at the time, because he's a perfect high priest. He's always able to give us the measured help and grace we need in our time of need. And so we come before him. Now, all this is setting up to tell us about Aaron. Why is that important? Because we know the other place this is going to go is to say that, yes, in some ways he's like Aaron, but he's greater than Aaron, greater than Aaron. And we're going to have a few chapters where the author of Hebrews is going to show us in all the various ways the many ways that Christ is greater than Aaron. And we ought to be thankful for that.